Welcome to Get Vertical with Mike McCauley, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of growth and overcoming challenges and lessons learned along the way. Sharing how we win both in business and in life by getting vertical. Join host Mike McCauley and his guests as we dive into leadership strategy, personal growth, success stories, and more. Tune in to learn how to fulfill your personal and professional goals and how you can get vertical on the many challenges you face today. You, you said you're writing a book on leadership. What's what's going on? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, our main thing, of course, is training companies on how to drive growth. But what we so it's a lot about, you know, transferring skills to their employees. But we've noticed over the years that some companies were really successful and some companies were not. And it really boiled down to the leadership of the company. And when I say company, most of these are Fortune 500 companies. That's usually who we deal with. So it's kind of bothered me over the years seeing some really good leadership practices and some not so good leadership practices. So last year, I reached out to Gina O'Connor, a professor at uh, Babson College, and we did a survey got about 650 responses and um, across a broad range of companies, mostly Europe and the United States, but, but also Asia and other places. And, um, and so we, we got some insights and I'm working on a book and hopefully I'll be able to tell you about the book later this year. But I can tell you a little bit about some of the findings, Mike. It's, um, I guess I'd use the word sobering. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so, when I was working inside of companies, I don't know where I came up with the term, but I started referring to some leaders as builders. You know, they just wanted to build something of significance. And I was working for my last job in corporate America was working for such a builder. So anyway, what we did was we defined four different types of leaders, builders, remodelers, decorators, and realtors. Okay. Now in the survey, we didn't say, are you a decorator? Cause we kind of knew what the response would be, right? <laughs> but basically in the survey, we said, are you the kind of person who your main primary passion is driving organic growth by delivering differentiated value to your customer? That would be a builder. Okay. It's what, it's what the founders of the company right. did. Right. So that was one. Another one is, are you mostly focused as your main primary passion on productivity and quality and other improvements? That would be the remodeler. And then we said, are you mostly focused on presenting a good face to uh, Wall Street? You know, that's every quarter, right? That's a decorator. And then are you mostly focused on M&A? That would be the realtor. Okay. So here's what was a little bit sobering about this. Only 53% of the senior leaders at these companies, and there are some very, very large companies, um, only 53% identified themselves as builders. And when we asked the subordinates what their senior leader's primary passion was, only 32%. Okay. Yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's funny you mentioned that, right? It is that to your point that's sobering, but that's also not. It's not that shocking to me. Now, I, the thing that would yeah. shock me would be is if a leader said, you know, yeah, I am primarily interested in presenting a good face, right? Most most yes. of the time, I would think that they would say. Now, if you said, are you primarily focused on delivering results for the quarter? quarter I think they would. Mm -hmm. There would right. be a, a higher number 
right? That right, that would right, that. exactly. But but a lot of them said, "Sign me up for decorator." Just I want to look good every quarter, man. Oh, you know. Wow. So so <laughs> when you, you found that, I mean, is there is there correlation and or causation that you're finding in terms of the results with those companies? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can't prove causation. That's so difficult to prove. So many other factors come in here, but we did see some very strong correlations. We we saw that the companies who were being led by the builders, uh, we also asked them two questions. What are your expectations for future growth? And how fast are you growing versus your competition? Faster, the same, or slower, okay? And for both those questions, um, the companies being led by builders had a much higher expectation of future growth, and they had a much higher actual self-reported rate of growth if they were led by builders than if they were led by any of the other categories. Mm. Wow. Yeah. It kind of makes sense, It, it right? is, right? It, it, it's absolutely common sense, but there's also like what I found in, in my experience in corporate America is a lot of times business leaders say, yeah, but, but, right. There's a, there's always a, but, which is, yeah, but I, I have to deliver this or I have to do X, right. There's, mm-hmm. there's right. this, um, escape clause, you know, that, that follows the, but, which is something that in their mind takes away their freedom of choice. Right. right, right, exactly. Um, you could say it's an excuse. You could say it's a reason. And there's some validity to it. But here's what the one of the opening chapters of the book will say. Uh, a builder understands his or her first duty. Now, people may disagree with what I'm going to say the first duty is, but I'm going to say it's leave your business stronger than you found it. So if you take a look at um, Jack Welch, and this is the, the age of fiduciary capitalism, where And to give them some credit, everybody was saying from Milton Friedman on that all you have to do is get the stockholder value up, okay? So he did lots and lots of things to get the stockholder value up. It's unbelievable. He was named manager of the century in 2001. Uh, But now, if if you've noticed, there's a book out called uh, The Man Who Destroyed Capitalism. (laughs) It's all about Jack Welch destroying the heartland. I mean, even today... Uh, the company, as you know, the company well, um, even today, GE is only a quarter of the value it was at the peak. So the, the premise we would have is this. Uh, the first duty of a builder is to leave your business stronger than you found it. Now, do a lot of other things. You've got a balanced scorecard. But if you miss that one, you have failed yeah, as a leader. It's, it's interesting, right? Because there, there's a ton of stories of so many leaders that have come in and they found a way to inflate that stock price. And then, and then yeah. they leave. Yeah. Right. And they say, well, I left it better than yeah. I found it. Right. Cause the stock price, but, but the reality of it is, is once you, when you really dig into it, the difference between, and I love the, um, the metaphors that you're using and um, the persona types that you're using, which is, you know, a builder truly puts a foundation in place and an infrastructure in place. And so when that stock price is at that point, it's truly reflecting the value of the company, right? Versus, Mm -hmm. you know, versus a decorator, which sometimes puts some really nice paint on the walls, 
and makes it look great, yeah. but you don't realize that the infrastructure is not quite what you were expecting it to be. That's exactly right, Mike. You know, the investors can't see everything. Um, they can just see what is presented to them. And if you think about a company, let's say a company has a PE ratio of 20. Okay. That means uh, to, in any one year, the valuation of that company, only 5% of it is coming from what happened this year. So what's the other 95%? Well, it's an expectation of what that company will do. Well, if you're in, if you're making drugs and you have a highly visible public pipeline of drugs, then maybe you can get a decent idea what the future value is. But for the vast majority of companies, um, it's the story that they're told. And uh, sometimes the story can be, hey, look, I've managed to keep increasing profits every quarter. I'm killing the company, by the way, but I'm, look what I'm doing. And that's the, the, the proxy for, oh, it's going to keep right. going. In some other cases, it's um, some financial engineering or it's, it's selling off our seed corn so we can't grow. So I think boards of directors need to pay more attention to the 95%. You know, we need to spend a little less time thinking about this quarter and this year and more about building for the future and then find ways of relaying that information to the market. Yeah, I, I think that's that makes a whole lot of sense. So question for you, right, is is you're looking at that and then you look back on on your history and specifically with AIM, right, the, the firm that you started, yeah. that you've built, which has been experienced phenomenal success. You made a transition from corporate America you launched from that and rumor has it you asked to be fired. <laughs> yeah, I actually did. So I, I was at the company for 29 years. Now they, they changed the sign out in the front lawn a couple of times during that, but I was just, I was there. They were going to bury me in the backyard. You know, I thought that's where I would retire, you know? And um, I was working for a builder, a Dutch businessman. He was just brilliant. I learned so much from him. And uh, at one point then we actually were sold. And um, I could tell he was not good at hiding his intent. You know, it was as clear as could be that this man was going to leave. And I was looking at the new leadership. I knew how much they paid for us. I knew they were going to be pretty short term oriented. And I thought, man, that's that's not what I want to do. You know, so I went to my boss and said, could you get me fired? Because I've been there so long. You get a big severance package. Right. And uh, I had been doing some things. It wasn't just on a lark. But I'd been doing some things um, uh, in in the front end of innovation, in voice of customer, uh, and training some teams internally, and they were working. Uh, I try not to look surprised when it happened, but it was exciting to me. And so my wife noticed I was getting excited about it, and she said, "You got to do this." Here we are, twenty nine years into a company, you know. And so, um, so that was a decision we made. So I went to my boss and said, "Could you get me fired?" And it, it didn't go well. Um, apparently, <laughs> he can't even get fired. What kind of inept fellow are we talking to? But he, he went to this new leader, the new president, and apparently they were sitting there with this big map of hundreds of offices. I don't know why the new president was doing this personally, but he was. And my boss kept taking my name tag off the offices and the, the new guy kept putting my name back in. So finally, I said, Case, can you, can you work at this a little bit harder, you know? And finally, I went to the new president and I said, listen, you know, I know you paid a lot for a company. I know you, you need to let some people go. 
Um, and I know you probably want people here, you know, who really, you know, want to work here long term doing the sort of things you want to do. He goes, that's right. I said, well, just so you know, I, I'm not one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be careful if you say I quit, you don't get the severance. Yes, right? yes. So a, a little bit of time went on and um, and uh, I got a call later on. Good news, Dan, you've been fired. <laughs> so that's how we got started. Wow. So, <laughs> all right. So it was this one of these moments where now you've jumped off the diving board and you're you're in the water. And what, I mean, what was it like those first, that first year? Uh, pretty terrifying. Um, you know, we, we didn't have a really good business model. I, I really wasn't, I was in marketing, but I wasn't good at marketing myself at all, you know? And um, so, in fact, this is kind of funny. I had a really good buddy. We both, we both were let go the same day, okay? And uh, he landed a, a pretty good job after a while, and we kind of kept in touch and stuff. And they needed some work done. And I was kind of talking to him, lamenting what he was going through. And he finally said, Dan, isn't this the sort of thing you do? Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so so <laughs> that, got me, that got me a little bit of work for a while. And then we had this newsletter, Mike. This is, you know, quite a while. This is 2005. Um, and so I would send out a newsletter every other month, uh, paper, you know, two-sided, physical mail and all this. And the strangest thing happened. Um, this huge $50 billion B2B company, uh, I get a call from the secretary of the secretary of the number two guy, and I get summoned to their crystal palace, you know. And um, so he sits me down. He goes, okay, Adam, tell me what you do here. And I said, can I use my laptop? Sure. So I pull out my laptop on his mahogany desk and I started going through a few slides. And he goes, wait, stop right there. Stop right there. I want to get my VP of training. I thought, well, I had a little time with him. I'll go on to the next one, you know. So he brings in his VP of training. He brings in another VP. And then he sits back down and says, okay, Adam, start it all over again. <laughs> and so it took off. And like the very first workshop he had me do was in this gorgeous um, hotel in Madrid, Spain. And it just it kind of went from there. Now, there's been ups and downs, you know. But um, but here's the part that's a little a little scary, Mike. A couple of years later, one of my friends at this client said, by the way, do you know what really happened with that uh, call that you had? I said, no. I said, I guess he read my newsletter and he, he liked it. Well, sort of. But what really happened was this, this number two guy, this company, he said uh, to his secretary, hey, where do you ever have one of those newsletters? Can you give me that newsletter? She couldn't find it. She couldn't find the newsletter. Then months later, she was cleaning out her file cabinet. Goes, is this it, sir? <laughs> so you know, maybe if she hadn't cleaned out her file cabinet, we wouldn't be talking. Oh, wow, now, <laughs> that's crazy. Well, and you wrote a book along the way too, right? Yeah. You've actually written a yeah. few books, if I understand correctly. Um, but but couple, specifically yeah. Yeah. around you know B two B marketing and around voice of customer and things like that. When did you actually decide to write the book? That was in 2008. So we started the business in 2005. <clears throat> and I felt that I needed to get these thoughts all down in one place. So it's called New Product Blueprinting. And that's the name of our 
training, you know, the, the, the offering we basically have. And that's still our flagship product is new product blueprinting. It's, it's really seven steps that you don't take all of them, but there are things you do in the front end of innovation. If you're a B2B company, don't have to be manufactured. It could be services as well. But most of our clients are, they make, you know, components or materials or equipment and some make services, but always B2B. And it's how you can have these really intelligent conversations with your customers who are also companies or business people at least, um, and learn so much more about what their needs are before you go develop your product. And, you know, I, I still believe at some point in the future, maybe it's 20 or 30 years from now, we'll look back and say, wait a minute, BB companies were coming up with what they thought customers wanted. They went through the whole product development process and then launched the product. And it never really started by figuring out what customers wanted. It's bizarre. It, it will be looked at with um, amusement at the best at some point in the future. Yeah, well, it's it's crazy, right? Because that's actually how you and I met was through that book. Um, yeah, and exactly. I, I remember, I, can, I don't remember if I got it through the mail, through, I think it was ISBM, right? Or if it was at one of their events. But I do remember reading it on yeah. a, uh, as a commuter puddle jumper plane. And it was like an hour flight. And I just I bulldozed through that and landed and was like, I've got to get in touch with Dan. Right. Oh, that was, um, you. that was fantastic. And then, you know, I think that was like 2009 timeframe, something like that. That would be about right. Yeah. yeah. And, mm -hmm. um, anyway, we, uh, we connected since the, you know, at, at that point, and then I've had the privilege of working with you, you know, all these years since then, and, um, continued just to be amazed at, by what you do. One of the things that I see. Well, by the way, by the way, working with just to just to make sure our listeners know, I've learned a huge amount from you. You were the guy who said we also had an offering for product launch, yes. remember? And you were the guy who said, you know, Dan, this should really be cloud based software. We didn't, you know, we had it all in Excel. It was pretty clunky. And you actually, from your company, funded our very first cloud based effort. We're still working with the guy that that is our development, our software development shop. Uh, that was, I think I was in 2011. Yeah. You got that started. Yeah. So, so thank you for all the contributions along the way. Oh, as well, absolutely. Mike. I mean, it's it's been a mutually beneficial relationship, without a doubt. Right. I mean, I've. Um, yeah. So yeah, thank you very much. And I think you know one of the things that I look at is it, it, specifically as you're talking about the softwares. A lot of times I, I've got a, a belief that is disruption is inevitable and it's who causes that disruption. Do we disrupt ourselves or does somebody else? And I see you as one of the business leaders that truly acts out what you believe along those lines. I've watched you disrupt your business two or three times along the way. Yeah. I mean, do you mind just... Yeah. Well, yeah, no, I'm glad, glad to share, but the embarrassing part is I needed a, I needed a crisis to do it, Mike. Yeah, but you know so, what you've, I mean, this speaks to the resilience of, of both you as, as a leader and, and just your faithfulness and, and stewardship, right? Along those lines with what you've been entrusted in the sense that you've, every time a 
an economic crisis has come, you've come out of it stronger or your firm has come out of it stronger than you went into yeah. it. There, there's, you're right. And I guess you, some people could put their head down and just say, oh, no, you know, go into kind of the shelter mode. But we, we were we were fortunate that the two crises, the big ones, everybody knows, you know, the, the, the Great Recession and then the pandemic, they really did reshape our business. The first one was interesting. <clears throat> um, you know, when you have a recession, nobody's too interested in doing training, right? I mean, it's a pretty discretionary spend. And so, you know, we did whatever we could to keep afloat. And we didn't have a lot of structure at the time. So our costs weren't that bad. This is, you know, a while ago. But I remember going to um, DuPont was one of our is and was at the time one of our clients. And like everybody else, they said, Dan, we really can't do these workshops and pay to bring people in and do all this other stuff. And I said, well, that's okay. I said, what if we do some horse trading? What if, you know, you provide a film crew and a bunch of DuPont employees as actors and we create a lot of e-learning and then um, I'll give you a whole bunch of free training. And, um, and I had to hire a few actors, you know, for the main parts myself. But basically, I went out and lived at the DuPont facilities for a while and wrote all the script and we shot all the videos and we've got these 31 half hour videos. And, and it's so funny now when I show it to somebody, they go, I used to work at DuPont. And that person looks really familiar. <laughs> so that's, that's exactly what happened. And then the, um, the second crisis, of course, is the pandemic. And, you know, uh, I was flying all over the world doing these workshops. As you can tell, I'm getting a little older. And, you know, I've got like five and a half million miles. It's kind of beating me up a lot of international travel. Well, that came to a screeching halt in uh, March of 2000. And so we had we mostly did private workshops. We'd fly around, but we did some public ones, Zurich, Shanghai, Atlanta. And we said, whoa, 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 we got we to turn these all into something virtual. And there's this thing out there called Zoom, you may have heard of, right? So we, we had to figure out how to do this. And just within like, I think it was five or six weeks, had to really convert over. But then it took literally another couple of years to completely get our business model moved over. We had to do it. It's like changing the spark plugs out while you're driving on the freeway. But you know what? What is good about these things is we came out so much better. You know, it was so non-productive. All of this traveling around. I believe 80% of my time when I'm traveling is non-productive. You know, in airline seats and Ubers and hotels and it's just not productive time. And so now you can see my new, um, <laughs> I, had, I did have, a, <laughs> I had a client ask me if I was going to read him a bedtime story, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but you, you know, I just do it all from here or almost all of it here. And then what we found was shrink the amount of the workshop time instead of two and three and four days of workshops, cut it down to two, four hour sessions and then beef up the virtual coach. So it's virtual workshop, but then do virtual coaching afterwards. So now we have these coaches around the world and we assign them to each new product development project team, a client team, and they just join the team. And oh my goodness, the level of skills development has gone to the roof because it's more about the coaching, catching them before they make mistakes 
rather than afterwards. So both business uh, changes were really, really helpful. I would like to think that I would have thought of them without a crisis, but I don't, I don't know I can say that. So. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, and you know, I mean, that, that also goes back to one of the fundamentals of marketing, right? Which is around FUD, right? People respond to fear, uncertainty, and doubt much more it, it, much more so than they do to opportunities and, you know, positive notions, right? People yeah. aspire for those positive. They're like, oh, I like positive. But the reality of it is they don't actually change most of the time for something positive. They change for something based out of fear. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, you're, you're, the, the, the change... It's, you know, invention is a uh, mother, uh, mother of necessity. I think I got that. Yes. At any rate, you get the idea. <laughs> yeah, we have to. I think the key is when you see, you know, the thing that causes fear, you, you have to deal with reality and say, you know, where am I? But then, you know, if you can, if you can have some colleagues and some friends to bounce some things around and start to think of different possibilities. Uh, there's there's usually a way out of it and maybe a better way than what yeah, you came in. Yeah, it is. It is.